Good morning. Our Bible readings today are from Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, followed by 1 Kings chapter 1, reading from verse 1. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then reading from Kings. Um, Apologies for any mispronunciations of the names. Verse 1. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king may may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready, with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zariah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Ray, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoholath near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's son, and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you're still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you've said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shumanite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want? the king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons. Abiathar the priest and Job the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I, my son Solomon, will be treated as criminals. And then from verse 32. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, 
Take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon, to make his throne even greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, the Kerathites and the Pelathites, went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. morning. My name is Stephen, one of the ministers here. I, um, I decided the other day that I really should be listening to uh, podcasts to kind of expand my mind or whatever. It's mostly just thought I should do it because that's what all the, um, the cool ministers were doing. So I opened up the app on my phone to try and navigate my way through the um, podcast app and, and find a podcast. I wasn't even really sure what I wanted to be listening to, but I found one on leadership and it was only 20 minutes long, so I thought I'd give it a go. And in this podcast, the, uh, the guy doing the podcast said there are six types of leaders. And in the first episode, he was talking about three destructive types. There was the domineering leader, there was the unpredictable leader, and then there was the secretive leader. Now, I haven't got back to the podcast yet, and I'm a little bit worried that I never will, and that I'll just spend my entire life being able to pick those negative leadership types and never be able to pick the positive ones. Now, maybe you're here as a leadership expert and you're kind of like, what is this guy doing, not having given much thought to it before? Or maybe you're like me and and your knowledge is kind of limited to the kind of life experiences and a 20-minute podcast. But whether you're an expert or not, It doesn't actually take all that much to see that at the start of 1 Kings, there's a leadership problem, a big one. This is a a book that's writing about events that happened 3,000 years ago in Israel's history. And the start of this book that we just heard read, it's got to be one of the strangest starts to any book in the Bible, don't you reckon? One of the weirdest starts. Have a listen again. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and to take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king, may keep warm. That's a strange beginning to a book. I mean, based on this, what kind of leadership category would you put King David in? They didn't talk about it in the 20-minute podcast, I can tell you that much. But it's clear this is a leadership crisis. This is a sad scene with an old fading man 
it's, it's weak and let's be honest, it's a little bit pathetic and actually that's the point. We're about to launch into an eight-week series on the book of 1 Kings and despite what I've said so far, this is not actually a series on human leadership. I mean, it's got heaps to say about human leadership and especially about its failures. But that's not its main point. This is a book about God and it's about how He leads His people. This is a book about God's promises and His ability to keep His promises even when it looks like absolutely everything is lost. And the fact that this book begins with this sad and pathetic king is not an accident. This beginning means that that pretty much the whole book is blanketed with this scene. The whole book can never shake off what this scene says to us. If you listen carefully, this scene is saying to us, even the best of the best, even the greatest of the greats is not strong enough, is not focused enough, is not faithful enough to guarantee to us God's kingdom here on earth. That's what this opening scene says to us, but there's something more that this opening chapter has to say to us that blankets the whole book as well. So let's get into it and see it for ourselves. So as we've seen, the great King David, he's now so old that he's completely bedbound, and he must have had some sort of circulation issue because his biggest focus in life now seems to be that he can't keep warm. I didn't think about it, but it's actually really relevant. We can kind of sympathise with him just a little bit today. I've never seen the blanket box be completely emptied. Today is the first time. So he can't get warm. And his attendants, we see, they come up with a strange plan. Now, to to begin with, their plan sounds like they're, they're really just trying to recruit a human hot water bottle. Now, someone who's learnt the hard way not to put my cold feet on another human being in bed, I would have thought they could have come up with a a more simple and more humane plan. Sure, they they didn't have hot water bottles back then, but they they would heat stones on the fire. That That was the equivalent. But there's more to the picture here. Did you notice their recruitment criteria? They search all Israel for a beautiful young woman. You're supposed to read between the lines. Their plan is to try to revive King David and and get some life back into him with a new sexual interest. And we're not supposed to think this is a good idea or anything like that. We're supposed to wonder, why is King David going along with this? And when we read in verse 4, the woman was very beautiful, she took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her, we're not supposed to think, what a dignified old man. Again, we're supposed to read between the lines. This is King David who does not have a good track record with beautiful young women. We're supposed to get that this is a king who's past it, who's bed-bound, who's too weak to stand up to his attendants and their horrible plan, and whose only focus is his cold feet. He's done. Now, you can't blame King David for getting old. 
It's like we saw in Ecclesiastes last week. Getting old is just the way that life goes for all of us. Our strength fades. But can you see that there's more going on here than just King David getting old? David is dropping the ball. In past years, we um, looked at season one and two of The Crown. Uh, Those of you who've been with us for a while might remember that. We looked at one Samuel and two Samuel. And do you remember what David was like from those seasons? David was the best of the best. He was the greatest of the greats. David, do you remember, he was described as a, a man after God's own heart. The way that he loved God, the way he trusted God, the way he persisted with God through those long years of being persecuted by Saul, the way that David never took revenge on on Saul even when he had the chance. David faithfully followed God through some incredibly dark days. He was truly inspirational and, and remarkable. Without a doubt, King David was one of the greatest and, and the most influential men in human history. And yet, at the same time, some of the alliances that David formed were with some very unsavory people. Some of his decisions to not bring people to justice, people like Joab, who not once but twice murdered one of his rivals... Some of David's decisions around women were questionable. And then, of course, what happened with Bathsheba, his adultery, his murder of her husband was outright evil in God's eyes. We saw in 2 Samuel that even the best of the best was not strong enough, was not focused enough, was not faithful enough to guarantee God's kingdom for us on earth. David, he was a complex mixture of of faithfulness and human failure. But nonetheless, God had promised to build his kingdom through him and to build it through his descendants. And even through David's failures, God continued to show him grace he didn't deserve and to use him in amazing ways. But now, near the end of his life, there's a crisis emerging... And it's not simply because David has gotten old. It's a crisis because David has not finished as strong as he should have. One of David's sons, so the fourth oldest son, but the oldest living son, decides that he's going to put himself forward as king. And look again at how he goes about it in verse 5. We read, he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. Just picture that. Just imagine doing that. Imagine Tony Zappier, you know, newly re-elected and feeling confident, decided that he'd get 50 of his most loyal Labour supporters in red shirts to run ahead of him in TTP and announce him. And then he'd come following through on a Segway or something. (laughs) It's, It's a ridiculous image. It's just insane. What kind of leader would do that. What kind of leader do you reckon Adonijah would be? His dad's still alive, but he decides nonetheless he's going to promote himself as king. He'd be the the type of king who is full of his own self-importance. 
And, and does he make you think of anyone else? In case we might miss it, we're told he was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Adonijah is just like what his brother Absalom was like. Absalom, who you might remember, tried to kill his father and steal the throne and threw God's kingdom into chaos. Adonijah would be an absolute disaster leading God's people. He's not at all the kind of king that God wants to lead his people. You can be pretty sure that he's not interested in building God's kingdom. You can be pretty sure that he's only interested in himself. But David is not completely innocent in what's going on. The narrator says to us in verse 6, his father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? Seems Adonijah consistently behaved like an arrogant fool and David consistently says nothing about it. And if you remember back to 2 Samuel, then you'll remember that this was an issue for David back then as well. David seems unable to learn from his past mistakes. He's failed as a leader within his own family. For whatever reason, he's just too passive with his own sons. And his failure to, to call out Adonijah's arrogance has allowed this crisis to come up. Even the greatest of the greats is not enough to guarantee God's kingdom on earth. Now make no mistake about Adonijah, he's not just a pretty face, this guy. He's smart. He wants to be king and so he wins over the, the key power brokers of the kingdom. And first of all, we see he gets Joab on his side. Do you remember Joab? He's the commander-in-chief of the army. This is a politically savvy move. Joab has always been intensely loyal to David, while at the same time being extremely comfortable to do whatever he thought was best for David, even if that meant outright disobeying David. Somehow, Joab is the kind of guy who always manages to get his way. So if if Joab has in his mind that David's successor should be Adonijah, you can be pretty confident it's going to happen. The other person Adonijah gets on board is Abiathar, the priest, another man intensely loyal to David. And so with the might of the army and the legitimacy of the priesthood, and with David's longest serving supporters, with him being, Adonijah being the oldest living son, everything is sorted. And so with the support of these two key leaders, Adonijah feels confident to make his next move. He has a kind of barely secret dinner party just outside the city. And he invites all David's sons and all the royal officials of Judah. Even though David is still alive, they start pronouncing him king. It seems so obvious that he'd be the next king that most of his guests probably didn't even think that anything shady was going on at all. Most of them probably think this is what David wants, that this is good news for the kingdom. But look at who Adonijah doesn't invite, verse 9. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. He's got the commander on board of the army, the priest on board, 
But he doesn't have the most important voice. He doesn't have the prophet, the one who hears God's voice. Nathan, the one who hears God's voice and then speaks God's voice to kings or peasants as if they were equals, who speaks God's word whether they want to hear it or not. And so Nathan is not invited because he's not on board with Adonijah and neither is Zadok, neither is Solomon. And the reason they're not on board is because Adonijah just cannot possibly be the king that God had promised would succeed David. Back in season 2, in in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, God had told the prophet Nathan to say to David these words. He said, when your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This prophecy was the most important prophecy uh, that the whole of one kings actually rests on. And it would have been easy to miss this, but this is actually a huge problem for Adonijah because when this promise was made, Adonijah had already been born. But God said David's successor would be a descendant who will come. In other words, someone who hadn't been born yet. And no doubt, don't you reckon, Adonijah would have felt pretty hard done by this. That because of just one word, being future tense instead of past tense, his ambitions to be king were not seen as valid by Nathan or Zadok or his younger brother Solomon. In fact, in some versions of this prophecy, like even the NIV 2011, you can't even tell that it's future tense. He's thinking surely they're taking God's words too literally. Surely they're getting stuck on the details and missing the bigger picture. Surely what mattered more was that Adonijah was born to rule. He was handsome. He was confident. He was smart. He had 50 people who would run ahead of him. The heart of the issue is that Adonijah wanted to build a kingdom founded on politics, not on the promise of God. But that kind of kingdom would not be God's kingdom. It would be a disaster. Now again, obviously Adonijah's got some glaring faults that led to this crisis. But as we've seen, David is the one who is king. And he's not innocent in all this. He never rebuked his son. And do you know what else he's failed to do? Maybe because he doesn't like to upset his sons. What he hasn't done is make his successor publicly, clearly known. If you were close to death and had less than ideal children, would you risk not having a will? Or if you owned a business and and you're about to retire... Would you have the retirement party with no one knowing who was going to lead the business the day after it? If you were chosen by God to to lead his own people, the people he loves, the people that he promised that one day he would bring salvation to the whole world through them, would you just leave it up to chance what was going to happen to them after you were gone? David isn't innocent in all this. He's dropped the ball. He doesn't even know what's going on in his kingdom. This chapter, it says to us, even the best of the best is not strong enough. But it also says something else. 
Because what we see next and, and what we see across this whole book is that God is strong enough. God is focused and faithful enough and He will somehow, someday, guarantee for us His kingdom here on earth. What we see happen next is God providing for His people even when things look hopeless. And the way God so often works is through the actions of His people. You know, sometimes we we long for God to work. You know, we long for someone we love to become a Christian. Or we long to see some change in our lives or in our church. And so what do we do? We pray and then we do nothing. But the way that God often answers prayers is that He works through the, the courage and the faithfulness of His people stepping up. And that's what we see happen next in this chapter. Nathan, God's prophet, he courageously and brilliantly kicks David into action. He gets Bathsheba to to go and talk to the king because being the king's wife, she can go in and have an audience uninvited. She reminds David of what he promised her because of what God had promised him. And then Nathan follows things up brilliantly. He corners David And the way he puts things, it means he's saying to him that David is responsible for the next king. David is responsible for Adonijah and everything that is already happening from Adonijah becoming king. Or he's responsible for making Solomon king. And it's brilliant because David is, is the kind of dad who didn't like to act in a way that confronted his children. But Nathan respectfully but firmly says... You don't have that option. No action is an action. And God works through Nathan and Bathsheba's courage and faithfulness and wisdom. Up until this point, the only words that we've heard from the frail old king is he says to Bathsheba, what is it that you want? But now he remembers God's promises and everything that means and he stops leaving things up to chance and he steps up at this critical time to fight for God's kingdom. He gives eight orders and all of them are spot on. His his attendants must have wondered how he'd risen to the occasion. He orders Solomon to be made co-regent with him and it's not to be done in some secret corner, it's to be done publicly and it's not to be done by Solomon promoting himself or by politics, it's to be done by bringing together God's prophet Nathan, the priest Zadok and Benaiah, the king's soldier. Unlike Adonijah, this is a kingdom that's going to be built on the promise of God. And David, he orders all of this not he orders all of this to be done within sight of the city and the people, and just six hundred and fifty meters down the road from where Adonijah and his dinner party is happening. You can imagine the next couple of hours must have been incredibly stressful. So much could so easily have gone wrong at this point, as they fetched Solomon as they fetched David's mule, as they gathered the people. Every minute must have felt like an hour. As they made their way out of the city and and stopped about 650 metres away from the other dinner party, it could all have gone so badly, so quickly, if Adonijah and and Joab and the dinner guests had wrapped up and returned to the city, if Adonijah's 50 runners had run into Solomon, about to be anointed king, 
But God's plan, no matter how fragile it might look from a human perspective, no matter how certain the alternatives might look, God's plan is the only done deal. Adonijah was so confident in his plan that they're relaxed and sitting back. And so even when they hear the trumpet and the noise of the people rejoicing, and even when Jonathan, Abiathar's son, comes running up, even still Adonijah assumes that news of him becoming king must have leaked out somehow. And so he says to Jonathan, come in, a worthy man like you must be bringing good news. And he was actually, Jonathan. But what is good news for one person can be bad news for another. And suddenly what seemed like a done deal is seen in a new light. And we read in verse 49, at this all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. They realize at this point that they're on the wrong side of history. And to their credit, when they see it, they admit it to themselves and they walk away from, that, from what they'd wrongly assumed was the right side of history. And Adonijah, he knew what he had planned for Solomon once he became king. And like a lot of self-obsessed leaders, he assumes that Solomon would have the same plans for him. And so we read in verse 51, Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And so finally, at this point, we get to meet Solomon. And the first thing we learn about him is he's not like Adonijah. Look at verse 52. He says, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed down to the King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your home. He's a, a king who's merciful and yet not naive. He's, he's wise and fair. Our first introduction to Solomon looks promising. And then in the second chapter, just as David is about to die, he charges Solomon like this. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. So be strong. Act like a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. This is a king who's been put in place because of the promises of God, not because of politics. And it seems hopeful that he'll be a king who'll build God's kingdom on these promises and in obedience. And we're not going to look at chapter 2, but it, it turns out Adonijah, Joab and Abiathar, they haven't left their ambitions behind at that dinner party. And so in chapter 2, we see Solomon wisely and justly deal with their treason. It's not a particularly nice chapter, but ongoing treason against God's chosen king has got to be eventually dealt with because it threatens the security and the peace of his people. And so finally, having dealt with their treason, we end the chapter with Solomon firmly established as king. And we also end the chapter with, with a strange mix of feelings. 
You know, that very first scene with David there in bed, it said to us that the greatest of the greats is, is not great enough to guarantee God's kingdom on earth. But then that first chapter as it unfolded, it said to us, God himself is strong enough, focused enough and faithful enough to guarantee his kingdom. But then by the end of, of the second chapter, we, we start to wonder something. Could it just be possible that maybe Solomon could be greater than the greatest? Maybe David wasn't the goat, the greatest of all time. Maybe Solomon could be it. Could he be the one to guarantee God's kingdom here on earth? We'll have to wait to see how that pans out across the book of 1 Kings. But just before we end today, what should we take away from what we've seen so far? What's God saying to us in in chapters 1 and 2? Now, today, if you've heard from God's Word, I really shouldn't be an arrogant leader. I probably shouldn't have 50 people run ahead of me through TTP. That's not a bad thing to hear. I'm a little bit worried if this is the first time you've heard it, but I'm glad you've got it. Or if you heard from God's Word, yeah, I shouldn't be like David and keep on repeating the mistakes of the past, the disastrous mistakes. I need to repent and repent of past failures and properly make real deep changes. That's also not a bad thing. Or if you've heard today, I need to be a proactive parent willing to say unpopular things. I need to take responsibility in shaping my children. Again, not a bad thing. Or if you've heard, I need to stay focused all the way to the end. I need to give God's kingdom the the priority that it deserves. I need to make sure that I'm not someone who drops the ball. Again, all these things, they're not bad lessons to learn, but there's something much bigger than these, that these two chapters are about. These two chapters and, and this whole book is not really about what kind of leaders we should be. It's really about what kind of leader we really need. And right up front in this book, we see we need a better leader than even the best. Even the best is not strong enough, not focused enough, not faithful enough to guarantee for us God's kingdom. And if even the best is not enough, then where does that leave God's kingdom? What hope does it leave God's people? It leaves them back then looking to God to somehow, someday, provide a a different kind of leader. But it, it leaves us today somewhere quite different, doesn't it? We have that leader already. We've seen God provide for us a a king who is humble, who is unlike the other kings of this world. A king who shares in the the frailty of, of human flesh alongside us and yet is not beaten down by it. A king who's overcome it, who's overcome death. We have a king who is, is strong enough, focused enough, faithful enough to guarantee for us God's kingdom because he actually gets to the heart of the problem that we have, dealing with death and dealing with our sin rather than being beaten by these things or joining us 
in them like everyone before him. We have that king. But like Nathan, like Bathsheba, we too can know what, it, what it's like to look like we're on the wrong side of history. So many in our world, Jesus just seems like no one or, or nothing. Do you ever feel that? I think we feel it more and more these days. Do you ever f- feel the next step, like maybe you're on the wrong side of history? Like maybe you're wasting your life or, or risking your reputation? Well, it all comes down to whether we can trust what God has promised us or not. It doesn't matter how things look. It doesn't matter how certain the alternatives look or how those alternatives promote themselves or make it sound like they're a done deal. If God has promised something, then His plan is the only done deal. And God has promised us that Jesus will return And his kingdom will one day be seen for all that it is, by everybody. And if that's what God has promised us, then that's what's going to happen, even if it doesn't look like it. You know, when Jonathan showed up and explained what what God had done in making Solomon king, most of them realized at that point who the true king was. And they saw that it, it would be foolish to stick with Adonijah. But did you know that Jesus resurrection is like Jonathan turning up at that dinner party. Jesus' resurrection is God's way of saying to you, here's the king I want you to follow. The evidence is there if you'll go looking for it. Now it's your move. What are you going to do? God gives us the option to give up rival kingdoms and, and be welcomed into his with open arms. But he also tells us that it's only an option for a limited amount of time. Just like the the treason of Joab and Adonijah eventually caught up with them, it'll be the same for us. Either we're on the right side of history with the king that God has chosen or we're on the wrong side of history. God promises to have mercy on those who, who come over to Jesus but he also promises to judge those who refuse to. And it doesn't matter which side looks more convincing right now, the only thing that matters in the end is what God promises because that's what you can be sure is going to happen. Which side of history are you on? Let me pray for us. Father, help us to see your world the way you would have us see it. That no human leader is going to provide the answers for the problems of this world or the problems of our own lives and hearts, other than the King that you have provided for us, Jesus. Lord, help us to see that we are not the solution either. We're not strong enough, faithful enough, good enough to guarantee for us even the good life right now, let alone a place in your kingdom. Help us to see just how much we need Jesus. Lord, help us to see that he is a King unlike any other, humble, merciful and just and we pray Lord that we would see that when our hope is in him we're on the right side of history not because we're so wonderful or so great but because he is and because he is bringing about this world restored the way you want it to be. Lord uh, give us the eyes to see this and the heart to feel it 
when we're struggling in life, when we feel like you're not at work, when we feel like your kingdom is not really happening around us. Lord, help us to yet again look at the cross, look at the resurrection and see that your promises alone are sure in this life and in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.